I've been away from South Carolina for about three and a half, almost four weeks now, and I talked to Stuart on the phone this afternoon, and he said, I really, really, really miss you. And I said, okay, I understand that, because being interpreted, that means all the leftovers in the freezer are now gone. <laughs> and he's like, how did you know? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gracious, forgiving, redeeming God you are. We know it from experience. You've been gracious to us. You've forgiven us. And you've redeemed us. So tonight, Father, we come before you. We're saying, Holy Spirit of the living God, come and bring revelation to the deepest part of our being. Open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to perceive the reality of who you are. And cause our feet to walk in your ways. We want to be doers of your word and not just hearers. Holy Spirit, we're asking you to come tonight and wake us up. Every person, Father, in this house tonight that's been spiritually comatose or spiritually sleeping, would you wake us up into the newness of life that you have for us? Would you wake us up, Lord God, to discern the hour in which we live and to comprehend, Father, the part you want us to play for your honor and for your glory and so that the name of your Son would be famous in our generation. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. For the last two weeks, tonight would be our third installment, we have been looking at the book of Esther. I was just recently told um, that because there's so much material here and there's been such a positive um, re response to this teaching, I've been given the first Wednesday night in October to do a fourth session on Esther, just so you guys know, because there's just there's more material here than I can possibly cover in even really four weeks, but I can do more in four than I can in three, so I'm taking it. <laughs> the first week when we opened the book of Esther, we looked at the concept of law, and we looked at the law of God, which is Torah, and the law of man, which is Doth. We compared the idea that when God's law is set, it is eternal. It is as eternal as he is. And of course, his law basically would be the Ten Commandments. They are right now. They're going to be right a hundred years from now, should the Lord tarry a thousand and ten thousand years from now. And they will be as right in eternity as they are in time. Amen. Because they are the laws of God and they do not change. The laws of man, on the other hand, when the laws of man move away from the laws of God, the laws of man glorifies man. The law of man will only last as long as the one who made the laws or the culture who endorsed the laws. And I say to you, every time we get together, be very aware that we are living in a day in this country where the laws of man are going to compete for the laws of God. And we are going to have to determine in our hearts, make up our mind, that we are going to follow the laws of God even if we have to violate the laws of man. Amen. 
And we are quickly, I think the day is already upon us to where if we are going to violate the laws of man, it is going to put us in direct conflict with the kingdom of man. And we are going to have to determine in our hearts that we are going to do what is right, even if it costs us a great cost. Because I tell you, I would rather do what is right and honoring and pleasing to the Lord and know that it is he that I fear and not man. Because you cannot be a God pleaser and a man pleaser. Because if you seek to please man, you will violate the laws of God. But if you seek to please God, you're going to really upset some people over here making laws for their own selfish, carnal intents and purposes. And we saw that in our first session in the book of Esther. God is in his law, and we need to be men and women of his law, men and women of his spirit and of his word. Last week, we looked at so many things. We looked at Esther and spending that time, that six months in a bath of myrrh, a bath of bitterness to draw out the toxins and the poisons in her life and related that to the idea that God will often put us in difficult circumstances and situations, painful moments, trying moments, not to make us miserable, but he will put us in those moments to draw the garbage out of us so that we can be right before him and whole and healed. And then we looked at the idea that when Esther went before the king, she could take anything with her. But instead of taking sparkly things, instead of taking fine cosmetics and all these other paraphernalia, Esther submitted to Bigthan, the head eunuch, and only took what he suggested. And we're not told what she took, with her, but the idea is that whatever she took, it was something very simple because Esther knew that her beauty was not from sequins and jewels. Her beauty was from holiness. And she knew that her beauty was born out of a right relationship and the purity of her heart and the purity of her relationship with the Lord. I ask you to think about the possibility that the church in this hour, the 21st century church, has become a church of bling, lots of sparkles, lots of noise, lots of programs, lots of ideas, but no substance. And that what the Father is looking for is a people of substance, a people who adorn themselves in his presence and know that that's enough. We are quickly becoming a church culture. And when I say church, I'm talking about church at large and not just this particular church or even the fellowship that you might be a part of. But church at large is quickly becoming nothing more than noise and sparkles with very little power and substance of God's spirit. That's pretty much where we ended last week. And tonight, we're going to pick up in chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 23 for you, and then I'm going to read several verses in chapter 1. Chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made her kindred or her people known as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, 
and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now move on down to verse 8. Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Then drop on down to verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's back up to chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Here we find Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, the one who has sat at the king's gate since the day that Esther had been taken into the king's harem. He's there not for his own bringing up not for his own promotion he is there because he wants to know how things are going with his niece because he really cares about her we talked about him as a type of holy spirit because he hovers and intercedes and cares and watches over her we're reminded of the reality that god hovers over our lives we are never alone. Even in new and different and frightening situations, we are not alone. The Spirit of the living God hovers over our life to bring forth that which is precious, to bring forth that which is of the new nature, to bring forth that which pleases the Father, to bring forth that which reflects His Son. And the Spirit of God is hovering over each of your lives tonight. He's watching over you, and you are not alone. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how it looks. In that new job where everything's overwhelming and just eating you up for lunch, know this, you are not alone. It is not up to you and your ability because the Spirit of God is hovering over to you to make you better than you are, to give you more insight and more information and more understanding than what you and your natural self are capable of. So we see even in chapter, three, in chapter 2, we see even after Esther has been made queen, Mordecai is still at the gate. Because we find that even when we think we have gotten there, even when we think we have arrived, even when we think we are at the place where no one can touch us and nothing can go wrong for us now, the Holy Spirit knows better and he is still hovering over our lives. 
He doesn't hover over the lives of just the newborn Christians. He hovers over each of our lives at each phase or stage in our lives to bring us to that next place, to take that next step or that next level, to make us better than we are, to bring us to a place where we reflect the image of the Son of God to a world that's lost and dying and in desperate need of an accurate image and reflection of the sun on planet earth today. So Haman's at the gate. Sorry, Mordecai is at the gate. Haman's going to be there in a minute. (laughs) But for right now, it's just Mordecai. Mordecai is at the gate. And while he is at the gate, unbeknownst to Esther, unbeknownst to King Ahasuerus, two of the servants of the king began to plan and plot a coup to take down and destroy King Ahasuerus. And Mordecai sends word to Esther, this is about to happen, and this is who said it. Teresh and Bichthan are about to uncover this evil plot to destroy King Ahasuerus. Now, I don't think that Mordecai is as nearly interested in Ahasuerus as he is in Esther. Because if the king goes down... It's going to jeopardize Esther. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Mordecai is there for Esther. And let's keep it straight, folks. The Holy Spirit's hovering over you for you because he loves you and has a plan and a destiny for your life. So Esther reports it to the king. And the king, he gets it checked out. And it proves to be true. And these two men are dealt with. And it's written down in the Chronicles of the King, I think it's very important, and Vic Bartlow could speak to this far better than me, it is very important that when the Lord does something in our lives that we write it down. Because if we don't write it down, guess what happens? We forget. It doesn't matter how good your memory is. At some point, other things crowd in and other things vie for your attention. And if you do not write it down, you will forget. You'll forget names, you'll forget moments, you'll forget what God said, what God did in that moment. And it is good for us to write it down and to keep it in a place where we can remind ourselves of what the Lord has done. So he has it written down. Now let me back up for a moment and talk about the gates. In the Bible, gates are very important. All the way from Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Gates are very, very important. Here's some of the things that go on in gates. If a military is about to take a city, the first thing that they inspect are its gates because that's the only way they're getting in. They're either going to have to climb the wall, which means they're going to lose a lot of men and a lot of ammunition, or they're going to take down the gates because once they take down the gates, the city is at their disposal. So militarily, gates are very important. Now let me apply this to us. The gates to our life are strategically important. If we allow the enemy access to the gates of our life, let me tell you what the gates are. Our eyes, our ears, our heart. These are the gates of our life. And if you want to know what you've let into the gates of your life, listen to what comes out of your mouth. Because what you see with your eyes, what you hear with your ears, how you interpret that with your heart will always find its way out your mouth. So listen to what you're saying. 
And if you're constantly tearing people down, if you're constantly complaining, you're constantly finding things that are wrong and finding fault with this and with that and everything is just so bad, you've left the enemy in your gate. And it's time for you to ask Jesus to take care of it. But militarily, gates are very strategic. Be careful. What is that children's song? Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. It is still true for us as adults. That is not just a children's song. That should be our anthem. That should be something we remind ourselves of on a daily and maybe even hourly basis. But gates are militarily strategic and important because if the enemy wants to get in to take down the city, it's the gates that are going to be examined. Gates were also the place where business took place. If someone had a business proposition or they wanted to make a deal or if they wanted to sell something, it was at the gate because the gate was where everyone came in and everyone went out. On a daily basis in an ancient city, just about everyone within that city would either go in or out of the gate at some point. So if you wanted to conduct business, the gate was a good place to do it because everybody saw that. Be careful who's doing business at your gate. Look around at what's being bought and sold in your heart. Are you selling your morals? Are you selling your principles? Have you put your integrity out for sale? Because if you have, make no mistake about it, there will be someone come along and take it from you. It's where business is done. So make certain that what goes on at the gate of your life is upright and pleasing to the Lord. The third one, it's where judgment takes place. If someone was taken in a trespass, according to the book of Leviticus, if they have broken one of the laws or one of the commandments, that person is taken to the gate and their judgment and punishment was dealt out to them. The gate was an important place. It was the social gathering place of the ancient world. So it was militarily important. It was important to business. It was important because of judgment and, and then the execution of that judgment and punishment. It's where local gossip went on. If you were standing at the gate, you got to hear everything that was going on outside your gate. And then you got to tell someone else everything that's going on inside your gate. I remember there was a man named Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. Hezekiah was a great king. And an illness fell upon Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was raised up by the Lord and 15 years were added to his life because of his prayers and petitions to the Lord. But during that additional 15 years, Hezekiah invited the Babylonians inside his gate and he showed them all that he had. And it wasn't long after that, Isaiah comes up to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, what is this that you have done? And he said, oh, these great, wonderful people, the Babylonians came knocking on the door and opened the gate and let them in and I showed them everything that's in the temple and everything that's in the treasury. And Isaiah said to him, there will come a day when those very people will come back and take everything that you have shown to them. Be careful who you let in your gate. Be careful what you listen to and take into your heart. Be careful what comes through your eyes. We are in a desperate moment. Desperate because if God doesn't do something, 
as a nation, we are going to spiral down morally even more than we already have. And it's not just the nation out there because the nation has found its way inside the church. And it must be because at some point the gates have been compromised and we have allowed the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that our heart interprets and translates for us, we have allowed those things to dictate our morality rather than the word of God. Oh, you guys are so quiet now. <laughs> Breathe. Military, business, judgment, local gossip. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, Abraham and Lot have separated ways. Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. It is always dangerous to pitch your tent toward Sodom because your gates can be open to what you're pitched toward. We see his, his tent pitched toward Sodom, and then in just a few verses, we find him standing in the gates of Sodom. He's no longer living outside of Sodom. Now he is in the city gate. He's there. And as one of the people standing at the city gate, that means he's one of the elders because the elders gathered at the gate. That means his voice is heard and is respected. I tell you this, it is time for the church to stop seeking the privilege, to stop seeking the respect of this world and to start seeking the favor and the privilege and the respect that only comes from a holy God. If God puts you in the gate, then you stand there as an intercessor, but you hold true to the law and the moral standards that are imprinted upon your heart by the Spirit of the living God. You do not compromise yourself just so you can stay there. And it seems to me that everyone that goes to Washington or goes to Hollywood, at some point they compromise just so they can stay there. They get addicted to the popularity. They get addicted and intoxicated with the money and with the privilege that they think that it's buying them, having no clue that they have sold their soul and denied the very one that saved them and maybe even offered them that position to start with. Be very careful. I would prefer that no one ever know who I am and for me to uphold the laws of God and to walk with him in integrity than for the whole world to know my name and applaud when I walk down the street. And it's time for us to get that stuck in our heads and to get it recorded in our hearts and make up our minds who it is that we're serving and why we're serving him. Gates are very important. Lot got too close to the gate of Sodom and it swallowed him whole. Another man, 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom. Absalom is the son of David. Absalom and David have had some father-son issues that I will not go into detail tonight, but if you want to look at family issues and dysfunction, read the life of David. He was a man of God. He was a man after God's own heart. But David was not perfect and made mistakes. And his mistakes are recorded in Scripture, not for us to judge and critique him, but for us to look at his actions and go, Father, help me not to walk in that way. Help me to be a woman after your heart, but without going through some of the things that David had to go through. Without making some of the mistakes and falling into some of the pitfalls that David fell into. So Absalom, David's son, he has decided that being the son of the king is not enough. He wants to be the king. And I think that 
the reason Absalom wanted to be the king wasn't so much because he wanted the position and the power, but he wanted to ruin his father. Because in so many ways, he felt like David had ruined him, and this is an act of vengeance. We're told in the passage that I gave you that Absalom stood at the gate, and as people walked into the gate, he shook their hands and kissed their faces and said to them, I know it's been hard for you, and if I were the king, it wouldn't be this hard. I know you've gone through some things, but if I were the king, if I were the king, we... He didn't even say he's the son of David, and he identified himself with the people, and he said, and we have our cause. And the people fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, and David had to flee his own kingdom until Absalom was subdued and destroyed. At the gates, a lot goes on at gates. I would that the Father would stir within our hearts tonight the realization that we need to be intercessors at the gate of our own life. That we need to be intercessors at the gate to the life of our children. That we need to be careful what comes into our gate and what goes out of our gates. And we need to watch for the lies and the moral compromise of the enemy that's going on all around us. Because if he can weaken our gates, he will do it. But I have good news for you tonight. Take a deep breath. Because that's a lot for any one person to do, right? You know who stands guard at the gate of your life? It's the spirit of the living God himself. He is guarding the gate of your destiny. He is guarding the gate of your heart and your mind. Because just as Mordecai stood at the gate and guarded the gate on Esther's behalf, the Holy Spirit guards the gate of our life. The gate of our destiny. Nothing touches you unless the Father allows it. And if the Father allows it, there is redemption. And there is restoration. Because that's just the kind of God he is. The gates of our life. Proverbs says, guard your heart. For out of it flow the issues of life. Guard your heart. Set a watch over the gate of your heart because out of it will flow the substance and the things of life. Oh, church, if you can just get a vision of this, it will make you go, I'm not watching that. I'm not listening to this. Heart, be still and let truth, let the truth of God's word prevail over the lies. If you would watch the gates of your heart, the gates of your eyes, the gates of your ears, then when the enemy comes in and says, you're no good, you're not going to make it, you could go, liar! I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And even if it takes you seven times, you'll get up and go back an eight time because you say, I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And I won't stop until I'm free. Let the truth dwell, dwell richly within you and let the truth of God's word and the integrity of your heart strengthen your gates. And the Holy Spirit will guard your gates and he will guard the gate to your destiny. So who stands at the gate of our lifestyle, our destiny? Well, I think the media tries to gain access to the gate of our heart. I think significant people in our lives will often try 
to gain access to the gate of our lives for less noble purposes. I think the political realm of a fallen humanity tries to stand at the gate of our heart and tries to feed into us. But the final word is this. Let the spirit of the living God stand at the gate of your life and let him be the one who guards and directs the gate of your destiny. In Esther 2.19, what Mordecai does as what appears to be a random act of kindness, it eventually comes back to bless him in many ways. You would think that when you read chapter 4, that, that, sorry, when you start reading chapter 3, after what Mordecai just did, he just saved the king and the kingdom. And you would think that chapter 3 would start out, and the king celebrated what Mordecai had done and how Mordecai had saved the kingdom. And so Mordecai was given a great position and great favor and great power. But chapter 3 doesn't start out like that at all. Chapter 3 starts out and says, and Haman, whose name means magnificent. I think that tells us a lot about him right there. Anybody who would refer to themselves as, as magnificent. You can almost, if I were a behavioral analysis, I would say narcissistic in big, bold letters. Haman is immediately introduced. We don't know what he did. We don't even know where he came from. We just know that all of a sudden, after Mordecai does this great, wonderful thing for the king, here's Haman, and he gets this great promotion, and we don't know who he is, where he came from, or what he did. He's just there, and suddenly he's the second in commandment in the whole kingdom. Some people, if they had done something noble like that for someone who had the power to exalt them or to promote them, and they didn't get the promotion, they would leave with their feelings hurt. They would leave thinking, well, just show them. I'll let the next time that happens, I'll just let them take it down. I'll show them. They'll learn to appreciate me. And they would get an attitude, but not Mordecai. Mordecai holds his position because he's not in that position to get favor from the king nor to get privilege from the king. He is there to protect and to watch over Esther. And he holds his position, and he doesn't move. Haman, anytime someone that is not born of the Spirit of God, anytime someone that is filled with their own flesh, filled with their own carnality, anytime they get promoted, it is never enough. It's not enough that they have more than you'll ever have. They then want to take what little you do have. And Haman is no different. Everyone around Haman, they're bowing down to him. And they're exalting him. And they're saying all these great and wonderful things about Haman. And they're bowing down to him. And he is just getting more and more intoxicated with their praises. But then it's reported to him that there is one that will not bow down. Out of an entire city, there's one man that doesn't bow down, down to him. And that's Mordecai. And that one man becomes a splinter in his mind. Can you just see it? He can't sleep. Every time he closes his eyes, he's filled with his own glory and his own pomp. And he sees everyone bowing to him, but there's Mordecai standing. He tries to eat breakfast, and he can't eat breakfast because Mordecai. And Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him is just scratching against him like a grain of sand that he just cannot get rid of until finally he must do something about it.
He knows if he takes it into his own hands, it won't look good for him. I mean, think about it. It's going to mess with his press release. Haman, the man of the hour. One person doesn't bow down to him, and that's not enough for him. He has to take him down. That is not the publicity he's looking for. So he tries to manipulate the king. So he goes to the king, and he says to the king, there's a people in your kingdom. And listen to how he describes the Jews. They are dispersed and separated throughout your kingdom. If the world were to describe the church, how would they describe us? Would they look at us and go, they are scattered and separated all over the place. They're just everywhere. They're not together. They're not unified. One doesn't know what the other one's doing. They're just out there, scattered and separated. As long as we are scattered and separated, the enemy will have a field day with us. As long as we are scattered and separated, and there's no unity and no cohesion among us, then the enemy will be able to run right over us. Church, we are in an hour. We must be unified. And unified doesn't mean we're all the same. Unified means that we come together under, under the banner of the salvation that's offered to us in Jesus Christ and we confess that he is Lord and that his laws are written upon the flesh tablets of our heart and we bow to him alone and we will not bow to another. So Haman goes to the king and he says, they're separated and they're scattered. They're just out there everywhere. And then he says, you know, king, wouldn't it be a good idea because their laws are different from ours and their laws contradict your laws. They're going to cause trouble for you. Let's prevent this before it even gets started. If you will give me money and if you will give me a law, then I will have them all put to death. And it sounded good to the king. And the last verse that I read to you, Haman and the king sat together at a feast and drank, and all the city went into confusion. Whenever a nation is in a moral freefall, whenever a nation is producing more laws than it can keep up with, whenever a nation is producing laws that are contrary to the law of God, it will always put that nation into a state of confusion. But we know that God is not the author of confusion. God is wanting to consolidate us together again under the banner of his son, Jesus Christ, where we will not bow to another, but only to the one true sovereign God. And sometimes, look at what's going to have to happen in order for the scattered, broken, separated people to come together. There's going to have to be persecution. I don't like it. I don't want it. But there is nothing like a critical moment. There is nothing like a difficult time to bring people together in unity and cohesion. One of my favorite theologians, Jürgen Moltmann, he wrote a book called The Suffering God that was very popular in the late 60s. And he wrote this in the late 60s. He said in the 20th century, and as we move toward the late 20th century and early 21st century, one of the greatest problems that the church is going to face is how to be relevant to culture without losing its identity. 
For in order to maintain its identity, it often loses its relevance. But when it becomes relevant, it loses its identity. And then he makes this comment, the only way that the church can be relevant and maintain its identity is by clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. By recognizing that the life of a Christian is not a life of luxury and ease, but rather a life that flows against the current of culture, a life that is filled with suffering and trials and critical issues, but clinging to the cross nonetheless. Even though he wrote those words in the late 60s, it still rings true for us today. The thing that brings us together, I wish it were not so. I wish sunshine and rainbows brought us together. But typically it's storm clouds and disasters. It's things that cause us suffering and persecution. Church, we are in a very tumultuous moment. And in this moment, we can still see clearly. But there's coming a time where what we see clearly now may not be so clear to us. And now's the time to determine in your heart, who will you bow to? Who will you allow at the gates of your heart and your life? Who will you declare to be the Lord of your life? We can no longer afford, we've never been able to afford, but we are even less able to afford in this hour compromise and complacency. We need to be people that know that we are guarded by the spirit of the living God and that our destiny is guarded by him. We need to know that what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and what comes out of our mouth and our heart needs to be monitored by a holy God. Read Psalm 19. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my God, my rock, my redeemer. We are in such an hour that the things of childhood, the things of being baby Christians can no longer be afforded to us. We must grow up and become men and women of his word and of his spirit. Men and women who know the difference between his spirit and the touch of the flesh. Who know the difference between the realm of the spirit and the realm of the soul. People who know the difference between what's in this book and what somebody thinks might be in the book. It's time for us to know him, to seek him, and to say, oh, that I might know him. In the power and the glory of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might know him. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to go through stuff. Anyone that's in this room that breathed in and breathed out for more than 15 years can say, life is full of stuff. Some of it's not pleasant. Things get thrown at us every day that are difficult. And we have to determine in our hearts, I am seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. This world, I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. My home is not in time. My home is in eternity. And the things that I do in time are for the honor and the glory to his name. I am not here because he makes me happy. I'm not here because he gives me sunshine and rainbows every day. I'm here because he's worthy. I'm here because he's God. 
not do the things that I do because of who he is and not what he's going to do for me. We've allowed the world to inundate and to brainwash and sabotage our minds, the gates of our lives, with humanism, an idea or an ideology that says that God wants to make you happy. God's interested in giving you what you want, like a big cosmic Santa Claus. He wants to make you happy. Tell you what, I don't know about happy, but he wants to make you holy, and he will compromise your happiness in order to make you holy. He wants you to love him and to follow after him, but a part of that process is to pick up the cross and to follow after him. And with Pastor Dennis, poignantly reminded him on Sunday morning, the cross is not a piece of jewelry. The cross is an instrument of death. The cross is a place where I die to my dreams. I die to my visions. I die to my desire. And I come alive to him. And I say, it's no longer I that lives. It's quite too lives in me. And if I live in the flesh, I live my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who's at your gates? Who do you live in? And are you willing to stand when everyone else is down to dictate to this world? Right now, it can be novel and it can be cute. But listen to me, church. There's coming a day that when you stand for the things of God, it becomes you. And tonight is the night. And now is the moment to make up your Said. He didn't have to buy the He said, Make my house. We're going to serve the Lord. Lord Jesus, tonight, so much. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to strengthen the gates of our lives with your presence. We ask you, Lord God, to convict us when things come through the gates of our eyes, through the gates of our ears, or leave the gate of our We ask you, Father, to give us what we need to make up our minds that we are going to follow you. And the none go with us, we'll still follow. With the world behind us, we'll take our cross and we will follow wherever you lead us. Father, would you call us to be a people bound together because of your spirit? Bound together because of your and what you've done for us. Would you help us to stand as a unified group to declare to a world that's lost 